running now, huh? Okay, fine. We are now on the air. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Bone Ditch by Ian Bird. My name is Ian Bird, and this is Bone Ditch, my collection of strange and eldritch short stories set in a world where catastrophe is an infectious virus spread by a long-dead witch who's practically perfect in every way. You can always find out more about my Bone Ditch project at my website, www.boneditch.wordpress.com, and I'm on Twitter at, at @mrcarapus. Tonight's story concerns a teenage girl called Jessica, and what happened to her when her sanctuary became infected with the plague. It's the first part of a three-part story about three different women who together form a strange and powerful sisterhood of witches, or heroes, who wield a very strange and perhaps very familiar magic. Tonight's story is called The Body in the Library, and I hope you like it. Jessica started fighting crime in 1984, after the death of her husband Frank and the events on that English beach the year before, but she had been a bride of chaos since 1938. By the end of 1983, everyone would know enough to be terrified of her, but back in 1938 she was a 13-year-old girl who didn't like to go home. She lived in a large house at the edge of town, and it was a long walk back home from school each day, so she put that journey off for as long as possible. She would stop at the library instead, a hulking old factory that had seen better days, that looked as if it had seen all the days. Their hometown was on the southern coast of England, not far from the beach where the world all but ended in 1983. It trailed down hillsides from the farms among which her family lived to a small stretch of coastline that seemed perpetually out of season. The sea was there as a looming potential escape route. France was visible on some days. Sometimes fishermen would set off across there in pursuit of a livelihood. But most of the time Jessica came to the beach to look out across the sea, towards an impossible horizon instead of towards foreign shores or everyday goals. Everyone knew that Jessica would be giving school up before very much longer. She had a household to look after now, after all, and it was generally understood by everyone that the kind of education she was picking up at school would be less than useful in this regard. Her father had listed all the duties expected of his eldest child, his only daughter, in a ledger that he had left on his desk. Jessica was expected to understand these instructions perfectly and follow them dutifully with peace in her heart. After all, her mother had five other children, all boys under ten, and naturally she needed help. Everyone understood that. Jessica was starting to believe that everyone knew less than they thought and was starting to organise her thoughts against this thesis. Spending time in the library was a good place to start with that. The library had actually been built to serve a different master about a century earlier, but its true origins had been lost when it had been converted to its current purpose. It was a two-storey black brick building built over a cavernous basement. Back in the beginning, someone had decided to add a couple of jaunty flourishes, a turret here, windows there, but these glamours didn't fool Jessica. The library was a monolithic block that turned inward. The building had never been interested in the least in looking out. The only feature that served a genuine purpose was the door, and Jessica loved it. The library was much larger than anyone would expect to find in a town that size. The council took advantage of that and filled the basement with records that dated back centuries. And as the council did this, so local industry followed, paying for their old accounts and paperwork to be stored in a proper archive instead of cluttering up their own offices. In this way, the library became a vortex for information. It had its own gravitational pull, sucking in knowledge and assuring everyone that the information was safe. And who knows, perhaps it was. Jessica could never face going home after school, so she always stopped off at the library. She would have played with friends, but she didn't really have any friends anymore, and her brothers were too young to play with. 
Her mother would leave out chores for her each day and she would just have to get to them when she finally got home after the library closed, which was about ten at night. No one really knew why the library stayed open so late. In this way, Jessica got less and less sleep and seemed to spend more and more time hidden away from the sun. Everyone knew that Jessica's education was a frivolous and useless thing and that the sooner she walked away from it, the better she would be as a person. So naturally, she clung to the library by her teeth and claws. It wasn't a thought that she consciously acknowledged, but she was starting to believe that she didn't quite want to be a person. So, what to be if not one of those? It was another thought that was circling, but that hadn't yet settled. Perhaps she could be someone fictional. She spent years hidden in the library, after all, devouring all the novels her teachers alluded to, and then, later and more shamefully shamelessly, all the stories her teachers had warned her against. Of course she needed to have read all of Dickens, although she preferred Austen. She found Hardy's tales of inevitable gloom and doom at the hands of a bullying universe absolutely hilarious and thrilled to what she suspected was genuine insanity in some of the deeper caverns beneath the three Brontes. Oh, she loved those Brontes. She adored Emily's deranged passion and self-lacerating forensic obsession and Charlotte's unforgiving intellect and Jessica took an almost occult thrill in the knowledge that these three women were pretending to be men, but not really. Jessica never really connected with Mary Ann Evans' downright masquerade as George Eliot, but the Brontes invented names for themselves that could have been male, could have been female. Jessica was 13 and was worried that she didn't know anything, so it was a relief to find people who deliberately created mysteries that were designed never to be unravelled. Yes, Jessica's brain digested these stories, as if they had been banquets prepared entirely for her. The topography of the stories and contours of the characters became embedded in her as if they were landscapes she had walked all her life. She was growing a library in her mind, but a library that was a landscape more than a building. The more she read, the vaster became her territory. Those tastes began to run across that landscape towards the more disreputable stews. Because if she was a carnivore in her appetites, devouring novels in bloody mouthfuls one after the other, she was an alcoholic in her tastes. The enriching gave way to the seamy, the abject and the obscene. She started to read in secret when no one was looking, binging late into the night by candlelight. Agatha Christie had been her gateway drug, apparently respectable, one of us, but obsessed with murder, and suddenly the only stories that Jessica wanted to read were gaudy and gory, rich in flamboyant maniacs and despicable crimes. Those young Americans began to whisper in her ear, new criminals like Dashiell Hammett, whose murderous heroes drank martinis at breakfast and had sex in the afternoon, while the decadent Europeans started similarly to flirt and entice, shape-shifting perverts like Marcel Alain and Pierre Souvestre's Fantoma and Leslie Charteris's saintly narcissistic buccaneer. Jessica became expert at distilling the poison from the apparently nourishing. Just as everyone read Christie, so they all lauded Daphne de Maurier, but Jessica felt that she was the only one lapping up the secret dark energy in the stories. Just that autumn she had read Rebecca, and for all the swooning romance that left everyone else transfixed, Jessica grew inspired and strong from the occult salts she tongued from the eyes of a woman becoming a lost ghost in her own story, infected by the parasitic memory of a long-dead whore. There was something in de Maurier that no one else seemed to see, and it was intoxicating to the young girl. Her favourite, though, were Russell Thorndyke's stories of Dr Sin. As a little girl, her parents had once taken her to the town of Dimchurch on the Kentish coast, where Dr Sin was said to have ruled, and her father had delighted in telling his only daughter the saga of this vicar-turned-pirate-turned-smuggler, whose secret identity was that of the merciless and demonic scarecrow. 
Jessica had to read all the stories, of course, and she thrilled to the secret power of this gang lord who ruled by terror and followed his own law. At light, she liked to imagine the mask that she would one day wear to terrify the world and to bend it to her relentless will. So behind this little girl's face, so properly proper, so respectable and dependable and predictable, was a secret strength fed by secret appetites. No one knew she was a beautiful monster. So relied upon, her disguise was abetted by the utter lack of attention bestowed upon her. She was a good student at school, but her education itself was held to be frivolous by everyone else. She was a dutiful child, but her mother had so many children that the eldest was becoming invisible. She was a good friend, in that she never caused any discord or mystery. She was alone, truly. And Jessica was alone just then, that night, sitting at the table surrounded by a quite impressive selection of recent newspapers and magazines from around the world. The only light came from a couple of lamps dotted here and there. Only werewolves and young people could be expected to read by that kind of half-light. The only individual who perhaps noticed what she was becoming was Mr Vinegar. He worked at the library, but was not the librarian. Rather, he helped the librarian, ordering the stacks, locking the doors, clearing away the mess, answering questions. The town held that he worked in the library as a charity. Only a part of him had come back from the war twenty years before. What arrived back at their doors was ravaged and devoured of no real use to anyone. He had lost an eye and his right arm, and it was rumoured he now walked on a false leg, though no one had the heart to inquire for sure. His face was scoured and pockmarked with acid scars. His breathing could be ragged and hoarse, as if he were perpetually racing from something. He was a ruin, but if Jessica had learned anything from her stories, it was that ruins held dimensions that were lacking in the perfect. Mr Vinegar was actually responsible for what she was reading at that moment. He didn't judge the violence and the crime in her own tastes, but he did wonder if maybe there would be sufficient blood in the real world to make her mouth water. He felt it was instructive to know the names and habits of the monsters that existed, before learning the names of those fiends that did not. Agatha Christie wrote Murder on the Orient Express while she was on an archaeological dig in Iraq, he had said to Jessica the week before. I think that she was inspired by the idea of escaping into the real world, away from the everyday mundane, you know. Her husband is an archaeologist, I believe. Meanwhile, Freya Stark, she's a famous explorer in her own right. Mr Vinegar leaned in, as he often did when he was imparting knowledge, as if these were secrets as valuable as rubies and always at risk of theft. Miss Stark is English, but she was raised in Italy. She was not allowed to go to school, so she had to teach herself about the world when no one was watching. After she was disfigured in a factory accident as a little girl, she started to plan how she was going to run away to the Middle East, and then she eventually managed it. Just recently, I believe, she has returned from the Hadramaut, and she was the first Westerner to discover the ruins of an ancient cult of killers in Libya, or Persia, I think. She has written accounts of her journeys into becoming quite a celebrity herself. Freya Stark is the first woman to do what she is doing. She is driven to see every mysterious and splendid thing. I think you and her will get along famously. And since that talk, Jessica had found and read Miss Stark's The Valley of the Assassins, and was now seriously considering running away to find a place where she could herself be a complete stranger. Had she any real friends, they could have pointed out that she was already a complete stranger here, where she lived all her life. Sadly, ironies like that often required some kind of shared kinship in order to be appreciated properly. Reading about Stark had opened doors to other people as well. Gertrude Bell, for instance, who travelled to some of the same places, and before Freya in some cases, but who had been committed to the principle of women not having the vote for some unfathomable reason. And Lee Miller, who was another great fan of Freya's. She was only about 15 years older than Jessica and had been the most glamorous woman in New York. 
Then she turned her back on all that and ran away to France to become the muse and then the partner of Man Ray, the famous surrealist photographer. So now the model was the artist herself. Jessica liked that idea, that this kind of creativity and verve was infectious, that enthusiasm could be viral. There was a loud yelp in the library. A howl or something, far off, but echoing down the stacks. Jessica looked up, startled. There wasn't another cry, but the first one had stopped her, taken her out of the book. She stood up. There was only enough light to illuminate the things she was terrified of that probably didn't exist. Hello? Jessica said. Her voice was smaller than she would have liked. Mr Vinegar walked by. Jessica, he said, are you all right? Did you say something? He smiled at her through his false teeth. Did you hear that? Jessica asked. Did I hear what, my dear? That cry. Someone just screamed. In a library? I don't think so. Mr Vinegar looked at his pocket watch. It is getting late, my dear. Maybe it's time to be getting home. He hesitated. But wait, I'll walk you out. Jessica collected her things and left the library with Mr Vinegar. It was about ten and the town outside was empty and chilled to silence. She felt rhyme settle on her skin. Run along home, Jessica. Don't talk to anyone. He smiled at her. I hope to see you again tomorrow. Where else would I go? She replied. Jessica left the library and stood on the cold, cobbled street. To her left, down the sloping high street, lay the shore. To her right, up the hill, lay her home among the farms. As she always had since that spring, she hesitated. Jessica got home about a half an hour later. She got to work, preparing tomorrow's dinner, cleaning the kitchen, tidying away her brother's things. She ended her chores in her father's study, reading the schedule of duties that he had left her, a detailed calendar of the work that needed to be done throughout the year. According to her father's calendar, she should now be planting the cabbages, the carrots, the sprouts, broccoli and beets. The vegetable garden was a lot of work, and now it fell entirely to her. She looked over her father's plans, sometimes going a whole minute without looking at the blood stain that, for some reason, Jessica had never cleaned off the book's leather-bound cover. In the aftermath, she had removed all the other traces, but left this one. For all his faults, her father had left them well provided for, so his absence now hadn't left them destitute, only somewhat ashamed and battered. She looked at the blood stain again, and thought about burying things in her family plot. Sarah Kind found her at school at lunchtime. Sarah was a year older than Jessica and, Jessica had noticed, a much better person. Jessica intuited that this was the kind of observation that was unhelpful, but she couldn't help making it. She was her father's daughter after all. Their inside had always been unforgiving. Sarah Kind was smart and pretty, and most impressively, she was assertive. Sarah knew things about Sarah that Jessica could only guess about herself. You're always in the library, aren't you? Sarah demanded. I am, yes, Jessica said. Have you found it? What? The body, of course. What body? What are you talking about? Sarah looked irritated to be giving information rather than taking it. The boys, they're saying that there's a dead body hidden in the library. Someone was killed there and the killer left the corpse behind. The library's too big, there's too many places to hide. It's the perfect place to hide a body, the boys say. If it's the perfect place to hide a body, then how come everyone knows it's there, Jessica said. You're an idiot, Sarah replied. That evening she was back in the library, but this time, this time it was different. To start with, Jessica arrived there with several other school children. There might occasionally be one or two other fellow students, but never this many, and never so many boys. They kept arriving as well throughout the afternoon. They didn't seem to stay for too long, but those that left were replaced by others. They didn't settle while they were there, either. They fidgeted and they wandered. Could Sarah have been right? Or more plausibly, 
Could there be so many other credulous children at the school? All these children searching the building high and low for a dead body. As the night wore on, so everything became stranger. The children seemed to fade away, or they seemed to grow older before Jessica's eyes. They had been children, but now they were adults, some coming in from neighbouring farms, others dressed in their office suits. Jessica remembered Shelley's poem, disguised even to the eyes, like bishops, lawyers, peers and spies. What was going on? There were some women, but most of the seekers were men. And these men definitely weren't readers, that was obvious. Certainly they might pick up a book or magazine and idly leaf through it, but their eyes were elsewhere, scanning the stacks, peering down aisles. They cruised, moving lightly around the building like motes of dust on the air. They were looking for something, but they didn't want anyone to suspect this. And they all seemed to be there for the same reason. Jessica recognised some of the faces around her, but not from the library. Mr Vinnicker walked by, a familiar face at last, and Jessica caught his eye. My dear? What's going on, Mr Vinnicker? Jessica asked. What are they all doing here? He looked nervous. Quite a feat for a man with such extensive paralysing nerve damage in his face. He stepped towards her, then stepped closer still, and crouched down until what was left of his face was bare inches from her. His breath smelled of throat sweets, of chemical honey. Jessica imagined a soothing painkiller, but she also imagined embalming fluid. And his watery blue eye flickered as if it were attempting to communicate something quite occult to her that his mouth wouldn't countenance. There are rumours, my dear. I don't like what I'm hearing, but Jessica, Jessica, it might be wise for you to go home early tonight. And this was the only place in the world where Jessica felt like she belonged. The men kept moving around her, and at one point or another, every single man looked at her. They didn't glance, they looked. More than that, they appraised. Jessica wasn't used to being noticed, let alone being acknowledged, and suddenly she felt like she was being scrutinised. Not studied, nothing so analytical, but... But what? Jessica didn't have the frame of reference. She didn't recognise the intent. She was 13, and suddenly, if she hadn't known better, she might even have thought that maybe they had been looking for her. It was unsettling, but she realised also that she quite liked it. They must have worked out that she wasn't looking for the same thing that they were, that she must have been there as a genuine library visitor. So perhaps, maybe, she knew something that they could use to find... To find what? A dead body, really? Jessica remembered the howl the night before. Jessica had told Mr Vinegar, but she hadn't mentioned it to anybody else. That howl. Someone dying? Jessica didn't mind the confusion. She came to the library to get a better vantage on the things that she didn't know or understand. Ignorance was nothing to be afraid of, unless it was willful ignorance. She felt the mystery inside her, and felt ownership over that mystery. Yes, Jessica enjoyed the feeling. But Mr Finnecker didn't want her there. Unwilling or unable to argue with him, she gathered up her belongings as if to leave, and left her favourite table among the newspapers and other periodicals. The invaders watched her go, but didn't pay attention as she ducked down a corridor instead of out of the main doors. Jessica was not going to leave her library just because she was told to. She obviously knew something that these other people didn't. She obviously needed to understand the mystery. So she wandered down corridors that were ruptured with overstuffed shelves and gouting books. She would occasionally spot an invader, pacing purposefully but nervously down the stacks but she knew the building far better than they, and she was easily able to secrete herself away between a history of local almanacs or a tower of romantic melodramas. After dark, hiding from these hunting wolves, these truffling pigs, it occurred to her that she was in a dead forest, 
that the library itself was a cloud of slaughtered trees, a million corpses eviscerated and slashed to ribbons, and then stitched back together into a parody of life, tattooed with the dead words of the long-deceased and lost. The strangers and the invaders moved around her, clumsy and hungry, and, just for a second, she realised that she couldn't fill the bottom of this mystery. And then there was another scream. Solitary, instantly swallowed up by the silence like a gobbit of meat, but violent and undeniable. The scream had come from the geography study room, just down the corridor to her left. That corridor was long and dark. The dust that swam in the corpse-yellow lighting was decay in motion, everyday damage now rampant in the air. There was the door to geography, painted red in glossy lead paint, just down the corridor to her left. Jessica stared at the door, paralysed, imagining the damage within the room. She remembered her father's study. The door to the geography study room opened and a stranger walked out. He hesitated, looked up and down the corridor but didn't see her. She had shrunk back against the bookshelves, melted into the pages, lost herself. He didn't see her and he walked off, away from her. The door to the geography study room slowly closed. Jessica turned and ran. Back home at last, but the dust of the library still hanging around her, still settled on her skin and deep in her lungs, smelled musty and old. There was her mother's list of chores. Jessica cooked tomorrow's dinner and she tidied the kitchen. She put away her brother's toys and she disappeared into her father's study. There were papers to work on. There was a blood stain to study. According to her father's ledger, she needed to be writing to her father's sister over in Whitby about now, to be starting to make plans how they would commemorate the 10th anniversary of their mother's, Jessica's grandmother's, death. Jessica had no memory of the woman, but she dutifully began to draft the letter. Meanwhile, the house was pretending that there were other people around her, people who loved her, who were sleeping deeply. But Jessica wasn't fooled for a second. She was alone in a dead house, and her world was a murder scene. You were right, Jessica said to Sarah Kind the next day. The older girl turned pale. Are you sure? Something's going on, she said. What are you going to do, Sarah asked. It's my library. I'm going to solve the mystery. Sarah looked at Jessica, confused. Can I come? she asked. The two girls left school at lunchtime. They were too hungry to learn anything that wasn't bloodstained now. At the library, Jessica introduced Sarah to Mr Vinegar. The older girl looked at the ravaged man with suspicion. The ravaged man looked at the girls in horror. My dears, what are you doing here? Mr Vinegar, said Jessica, there is something going on in the library. Something bad is happening. We thought that someone had hidden a dead body somewhere here, but last night I heard another murder actually take place. It isn't just one body. Someone is luring people here and killing them. There are lots of bodies here, I'm sure of it, but I saw the murderer, I know what he looks like, I could describe him to you too, you might recognise him. No one, no one has killed anyone here, my dear, this is a library for goodness sake. He's in on it, Sarah said. My dear, that's very rude, look at you, the older girl said, how dare you, how dare you lie to us. Mr Vinegar's hand went to his face involuntarily, he limped away, unable to look at either of them. Sarah, he's my friend. And he's lying to you, said Sarah. He's lying to you about something this important, because he thinks you're a child. You're not his friend, you're just a stupid little girl who comes to his library. It's not that simple, Jessica protested. He's never lied to me before, he's always helped me. After my... Uh, since everything that happened, he's all that I've... Jessica, said Sarah firmly, he's lying to you. If you let them lie to you, then they'll always lie to you. But 
I know about your father. Everyone knows about your father. Your mother told Mr Cambridge, who told us all at assembly when you were away at the funeral. He told us not to tell you that we knew. He told us that you were embarrassed by your father and we just want to get on with your life without anyone bringing it up. And that's why everyone's been avoiding you since the spring. Jessica was silent. Mr Cambridge told us that you'd be leaving school anyway soon, that you'd have your own life to be getting on with before too much longer, that you'd be taking care of your mother and your brothers. He said that? Yes, he did, said Sarah. Is it true? They, my mother, my mother wants it to be true. They'll all lie to you if you let them, and they'll make your life a lie if they get the chance. Jessica led Sarah to the geography room, but there was no sign of a body there. The air felt musky, though. It smelled like a fox had been kept in there. Sarah wrinkled her nose. It's disgusting. It wasn't, though, Jessica knew. It was just an empty study room filled with books, with an empty table in the middle of the room. There were no windows, and only one lamp dangling overhead. It was just another study room in a library full of them. It was just that scent, that stink. And only then, because, because it reminded her... Let's go, interrupted Sarah. Jessica made the plan. They started at the top corner of the library and methodically worked their way back down, tracing their way through the labyrinths in this endless dead forest of other people's ideas. Jessica was starting to feel that she'd had enough of other people's ideas. As the afternoon turned to early evening, so more men began to appear in the library, back to search for the corpse as well. Or, perhaps more likely given what had happened the night before, to search for the bodies. Or for the killer. Jessica felt like Freya Stark. The men didn't want her there. They wanted it to be their mystery. She was supposed to go home and take care of her family, uneducated and put to work. Instead she was exploring. Instead she was excavating for the answers. And then, two or three hours later, trailing down through the sub-basement where the librarian had Mr Vinegar haul the out-of-date periodicals and county records, with her in front and Sarah behind, Jessica heard a third scream. Sarah froze. The scream, just one came from the room at the end of the corridor. The door was set with pebbled glass behind which they could see shadows moving. Sarah reached out and grabbed at Jessica, but Jessica was already walking towards the door. Jessica, Sarah hissed, no! Jessica heard her, but couldn't turn back. This was her library. In her school bag was the gun that her father had used on himself. This was her library. Her hand was on the door handle. In her head, absurdly, she could hear the clatter of typewriter keys. Here she opened wide the door. Mr Vinegar was dead on the table in the centre of the room. He was stripped naked, lying on his back. He indeed did have only one leg. The left was a prosthesis, a clumsy, ugly, fat wooden bone that ended in his boot. His body was blue, and the fat under his pallid skin pulled woozily at his ankle and buttocks. His expression was blank, and the paralysis was gone, replaced with a rested piece Jessica had not seen in her friend while he had been alive. And at the far side of the room was Mr Vinegar's killer. A woman. She was short, only a little over five foot tall, with long black hair falling down in front of her face. Her skin was pale, but tinged with yellow like snow at dusk. She was skeletal thin. She cocked her head at Jessica, and she smiled. Her black lips peeled away from tiny white teeth set into purple gums, and her hair fell back to reveal dark grey eyes, almost indistinguishable from their sockets. To Jessica's flailing horror, she was almost convinced that there was a third eye socket set into the killer's forehead, all but obscured by her hair. 
Will you come next? said the killer. Sarah was behind her, but she looked at the killer and she immediately screamed. Sarah fell back out of the room and staggered away as fast as she could, but Jessica remained still. Not frozen, she had seen worse than this, but still. Jessica felt predator muscles rearrange themselves under the shroud of schoolgirl innocence that she was wearing as skin and sensed the exact location of her father's gun in relation to her hand. Jessica, hissed the killer. Jessica had the gun in her hand before she had finished formulating the intent. You don't belong here, Jessica said. Jessica, no! It was Mr. Vinegar. Dead no more, he lurched up from the table, putting himself between the schoolgirl and his murderer. He bunched up his clothes around him as best he could and shuffled off the table in front of her, his eye desperate. Jessica, please, it's not, it's not what you think. I thought she, I thought she, she killed you. The killer cackled and slithered into the corner of the room. Mr. Vinegar dressed quickly, appalled by his bare, pallid, blue-grey flesh, babbling excuses all the while. Jessica didn't listen to him. She knew he was only trying to distract until he was clothed again. Instead, she stared at the woman at the far side of the room. The woman was wearing a thin, flimsy black shift that reached down to the ground. It seemed extremely old-fashioned, fading to grey, but there was an elegance to the cut, some artful embroidery, even as it tattered to rags at the hem. The woman herself continued to snicker, bracing herself in the corner, not taking any of her eyes from Jessica's face. Her skin was like a bruise. In the half-light of the room it took on an oily sheen, seeming sometimes bone-white, at other times black, blue, purple or even lurid crimson. With Mr. Vinegar now dressed, it occurred to Jessica that he looked more like the killer now, and that the woman looked more like the corpse. What's going on? Jessica said. My, my friend here, Mr. Vinegar began, gesturing over his left shoulder to the woman. I invited her to come, to entertain. She's lived a very interesting life and I felt that she would be a, um, an illuminating raconteuse. She's a prostitute, said Jessica. Jessica, Mr. Vinegar admonished. I thought you were in trouble. I thought you were dead. Sarah was right. You were just lying to me. It's not your place to judge me, damn it, Mr. Vinegar snapped. She is my friend. I invited her here. No one is being hurt. Here. Yes, yes, I lied to you, but I don't owe you the truth. No one owes you the truth. You live here the same as the rest of us. You take what you can find. This has nothing to do with you. Jessica stared at her friend. The mystery wasn't what had happened. The mystery was how she felt about it. I have work to do, Mr. Vinegar left the room, not turning back. And Jessica stared at the woman. In the light of the room, it was sufficient to read, but was somehow inadequate to properly make out the prostitute. It was as if she were bleeding shadows or somehow sucking in the light and smothering it. She stepped closer to Jessica, her bare feet padding across the tiled floor like a cat's paws. Your name is Jessica, said the woman. I'm not afraid of you, replied Jessica. I don't scare little girls. I've been ill, I've had bad years, and the next one's going to be worse. I came to gird my loins. The men out there, Jessica began, the ones that have come for you, they were looking at me. I thought they were looking at me for clues because I spent so much time here, and they thought they thought I might be able to help them find you, the body. But that's not it, is it? They were looking at me that way because they thought I might be you. And that makes you angry with me. It makes me angry with them. Angry? Jessica hesitated. No. Disappointed. 
spoken just like a parent. It was worse than that, though, wasn't it? The way those men looked at her made her feel ashamed of herself, and that made her angry. Her emotions were clues and red herrings, tugging her along the corridor to the scene of the crime, or to the scene of the crime that she herself would commit. She glared at the woman. No, I am angry. I'm mad. Look at it this way, the woman said. They're all dead, all of them. Your one-legged friend, those men out there waiting for me, all the people in your village. They're dead. They have choices, but they don't make them. They have options, but they don't take them. They do as they are told. They'll work till someone buries them or sends them to war. Do you know what happened to your Mr Vinegar when he was in Europe? He died. What limps around the library today is only following instinct. There's no malice to them, no actual desire. Rot makes them poisonous, not venom. Coming to me, being with me against all their rules and instincts, that's them making a choice. That's them coming to life. Nonsense, Jessica said. That's them just following the oldest instinct they have, the worst instinct they have. In a single second, the woman pounced, landing lightly on bare cat's feet on the table, bare inches from Jessica's face, and squatting. Her thin, long-nailed fingers splayed on the wooden top between her feet, her long, thin legs bent at the knee. Her eyes were still dark shadows, even now with the single source of the light in the room directly above her head. Jessica could see, though, that there were indeed three eye sockets in her face, each one boring into her. The woman's breath was rotten, drool seeping from the corners of her ear-to-ear grin. The gums were lurid purple between the black of her lips and the white of her small pointed teeth. They used to believe that the cure for syphilis was to rape a virgin. That was an alternative to the mercury cure, which killed as many as the disease itself. Victims would be left paralysed and insane, their faces rotting off, left alone in the dark as hideous relics, to be visited only by the monsters who wanted to look at the horror. Some casualties still believe that the disease is a sign of their honesty, the consummation they make with life. Some casualties even seek to trick others into catching it too, to lure them out of their self-righteous cowardice. All those victims marked by a terrible choice and turned into something new. The disease is life. The choice is life. That's not a choice. That's not good. That's, that's horrible. The woman with three eyes looked hard at Jessica. That's the mystery, Jessica. That's why the devil meets you at the crossroads, to offer you a choice. There's going to be a war because all the people who could stop it, who could have stopped it, are already dead. All they can see is the single road leading from the end of the last war to the inevitable war to come. The single war of no choice. Nothing makes sense because sense is instinct and instinct is only death. It isn't sense, it's choice, it's catastrophe. Her breath wasn't rotten anymore. Jessica thought of her father and the spring morning she had found him in his study. Why had he done it? Kiss me, said the woman, and I'll show you. Who are you? Jessica breathed. I'm the fork in the road. I'm the holy oar. And there were tendrils in the room, vines of ivy or the tentacles of something unseen, curls of smoke or waves of doubt. Jessica felt the vertigo of choice. The creature on the table smiled silently, like a reflection. Her third eye, a disfiguring scar perhaps, like the explorer Freya Stark. 
But maybe there were other eyes in the room with her as well, and Jessica had just lost count. The monsters who came to watch, or all of her own eyes back in her father's study, staring at the bloodstain on his ledger. Woozy, Jessica stepped closer to the witch. The witch cupped Jessica's face in her thin hands, her skin a bonfire sear on Jessica's cool cheeks. And she kissed Jessica, and she held her, and her tongue tasted the inside of the young girl's mouth just long enough so that the witch would recognise the taste again in the future. The witch broke off gently. Jessica staggered and blinked. Don't make your choice yet, said the witch. Just remember that it's there and that it belongs to you. Nurture it and there'll be plenty more to come afterwards. The witch smiled. But you would have been delicious. Jessica left the room. A man walked by her towards the witch's chambers and by the time Jessica had reached the staircase back up to the ground floor she had already heard his single scream. How was she making them scream? Was it just pleasure at her attentions? Or was she posing them a terrible secret as she had to Jessica? Was each scream a birth cry as she coaxed life back into their corpses? She didn't look at Mr Vinegar as she passed him on her way out of the library and she didn't see Sarah either. Jessica left the library and walked straight back to her home. Back much earlier than normal she played with her brothers, took care of her mother and cooked them all dinner. She was bright and friendly, and they all loved her being there. When she came back down from the boys' bedrooms, having settled them for the night, she brought a glass of wine into her mother, lying on the couch, pretending to read. "'I won't leave you,' Jessica said to her mother. "'Don't talk nonsense, girl. Of course, you're not going anywhere. You've got responsibilities,' Jessica cut her off. Father had responsibilities too. Tears came to the older woman's eyes. "'I'll take care of the boys,' Jessica said. "'I won't leave them, and I won't leave you.' but I will stay in school. That's the deal. I won't leave the family like father left us. I'll make sure we all stay safe. But I want to keep learning. If I'm going to stay here, then I'm not going to die here. Jessica, I'll only leave, she said, when you're all taken care of. Jessica kissed her mother on the forehead and told her that she loved her and thought that she thought about a war that would engulf them all because the people who were making the decisions were dead. Jessica thought about a world of mystery, invisible to the corpses marching by in an endlessly straight line. She thought about being kissed by a stranger in a dark room and being told that she was delicious. Jessica returned the gun to her father's study, now her study, and packed the ledger into her school bag. She walked back to the library. She smiled at Mr Vinegar, who smiled back through a paralysed face. Jessica went to the dark room in the basement. The witch was gone now, as she knew that she would be. She took the ledger from her bag and put it on a random shelf. And so her dead father's final bloodstain was swallowed up among all the other stories and mysteries and lies. Even if she wanted to, she would never be able to find her father's ledger again here. And Jessica would fill libraries with her own stories. She wouldn't make do with the stories of others. And she would protect her family from the consequences of living in this world of the dead. Her mother and her brothers. And before too long she would take care of her nephews and nieces as well, no doubt and she would solve mysteries and she would live on the edge with the earth behind her and the ocean in front of her. Jessica left the library for the second time that day. To her right, up the hill, lay her home among the farms. To her left, down the sloping high street, lay the shore. Tonight she turned left. She sat on the shoreline, salt whipping her face, and watched for the next catastrophe to arrive. To be continued. <laughs>